How are we doing this morning? Everybody well? Okay. Well, let's get started. So we're in Luke chapter 14, and we're going to finish Luke chapter 14 this morning. Often, when we, uh, when we think about evangelism or when we, we do evangelism, uh, sometimes we, we feel this pressure or we feel this temptation to, um, to think it's kind of our job to make, um, to make being a disciple of Jesus, a follower of, of Jesus, to be something that's attractive. There, there's, it's, it's tempting when we do that, to make it seem like it's a, attractive and it's painless and, 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 and try to make it seem as easy as, as, as possible. And, and this very thing is tempting to do because, honestly, we, we have really good intentions, and others have good intentions because we want them to turn to Jesus. We want them to see the, the good things of the gospel. We want them to see the good things of the Lord and the Word of God. We don't want to see them reject Jesus, and we don't want them to reject us, right, if we boil it down to it. Now, if you grew up in a church culture, you might have heard these things before. Some of the things I'm going to say, about three statements and before. And, I, and as I was thinking of these statements, I was actually quite grateful that I don't think my children have heard any of these. And I want you to hear these, hear this, and to God's glory, right? Things like, God has a wonderful plan for your life. Now, let me make sure I put these in parentheses, right? So we understand the context. God has a wonderful plan for your life. That is not entirely wrong, is it? He doesn't. And God's sovereign hand for our life, no matter what comes our way, is his good plan for our life. Now, when ripped out of context from Jeremiah 29, 11, which was written to the faithful remnant of Israel, of Judah, facing unbelievable suffering and death and carnage because God's wrath was being poured out on them, his judgment was being poured out on them. So this verse is being used to show, see, God has a, a wonderful plan for us, but in the ears of most unbelievers, in, in reality, most Christians, this sounds more like a prosperity gospel. Because, because a wonderful plan to so many is God wants me to win the Powerball. And then, yeah, I'm on board with that. I want to win the Powerball. Little plug. The importance of biblical theology helps us understand passages like that. So does God have a wonderful plan for your life? You better believe it. No matter what comes your way, the plan ultimately is to get you to the kingdom safely. You may lose your life. You may lose everything you own. You may lose your reputation, and that is God's wonderful plan for your life. But he will keep you safe to the end. You might have heard the statement, You've never had a friend like Jesus. I think there's even a song that said that. And, and again, it, it sounds good and even true in some sense, right? Where we, we certainly can depend upon Jesus as a friend. But the reality is to so many, it negates or takes away the idea of submitting one's life under the lordship of Christ. Because yes, he is our friend, but he is Lord. He is sovereign Lord over all. Lastly, maybe you've heard this one. Give God a try and see if he does not come through. One of the only times in the Bible where God says to test him is in your giving financially for the kingdom of God. 
It's the only time, one of the only times he ever says, test me on this. But this statement here is very misleading because it often is about trying to put God in, in our debt. And then if things don't work out and work according to, to my terms and my relationship with God as I define it, then here's my escape clause. There's my escape clause to get out of the contract. So what all these statements have in common is that they sound more like what a salesperson would pitch at us when we're maybe interested in looking at a car. The sign the dotted line, instead of really telling you the costs and the 72 months of payments. Jesus doesn't make a good salesperson. And this passage says, very evident, Jesus is not a very good salesman. He's standing in front of a crowd. He sounds more like someone trying to convince them not to buy. You don't want this. You don't want this. And he, and he tells them the, the, the least encouraging things he could possibly say. And if you've read ahead, you know what I'm talking about. He says the, most, the, 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 the least encouraging things that ever could be said. And he says what it means, but he does tell us, though, what it means to follow him what it means to be a disciple, the reality, the cost of being a disciple. So when Jesus commands us in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, he tells us to go, therefore, make disciples. This is what he means. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. There's, there's lordship there and teaching them to observe my commands because I am the Lord and my commands are good and my commands are to be obeyed. And lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And so if this is what Jesus tells us what it means to be a disciple, then we better know what it means when he says make disciples making disciples that are baptized in his name, who are obedient to his commands, and not only in our evangelism, but also for ourselves. We better have it clear for ourselves and for others what it means to follow Jesus. What are the real expectations? What are the, the realities and the possibilities? And this passage shows us this morning what Jesus tells us as his expectations. Look at verse 25, and let's read this together. Verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not sit down and, and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able, he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. 
So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either to the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts this morning to see, to hear this holy, inspired, inerrant word for his glory and for our joy. Amen. This is what I mean by the things that Jesus was telling us. You're not a good salesman here. I'm I'm not much of a, a financial guru. I'm certainly not the best to give financial advice. But certainly I've picked up over the years that a wise investor does their due diligence when they invest. They, they know not only what to invest and how much, but they also know everything that they can on what they are investing in. You really need to know what you're doing before you just throw money at something just because someone tells you it's a sure thing. No investment is a sure thing. That's kind of like rule number one. Of course, each of us has to evaluate our own situation before we invest, and then we know what to do. And we have to, in a sense, we have to analyze the risk versus the reward. Is the risk of losing the money you invest worth the potential possibility of reward? Sometimes it's worth it. Sometimes they pay off, and sometimes they don't. All of life, when it comes to making decisions, we do that. We make decisions based upon risk versus reward. Because when we say yes to anything, when we say yes to one thing, you are saying no to something else. We analyze the risk versus reward. And of course, this is some good advice, and you're welcome. But not to oversimplify these things, but isn't Jesus telling everyone here, this crowd and us through the word, those who are following him, to really look and to know exactly the risk versus reward of following him. He tells us in this passage the the risks of what you might lose. And the question I think he's asking us, and we're going to revisit this toward the end, is, is it worth it? Is it worth the reward? So Jesus was driving this home pretty hard, isn't he? This is some very hard teaching. Three times Jesus says, you cannot be my disciple. Three times. In three different ways, he shows, if you're neglecting in this area, you can't be my disciple. If you're not doing this, you cannot be my disciple. Unless you hate everyone you know, unless you're ready to suffer, give up all your stuff. I I know we've heard these things before. Most of us have, have heard these things before, and they are very hard. They're very hard sayings. And, he, and he, he speaks this way because he's, he's wanting to get our attention. He's wanting to get this crowd who is following him, the, the, their attention. He wants to get them. And he wants us to, us to look back at the Bible and say, did he really just say that? Is he really serious about that? Or is this just something, you know, we're just supposed to write off? Now, this type of communicating that Jesus is using is called hyperbole. Don't worry about that word. I'll just tell you what it means. This is what he means is he's, he's kind of intentionally exaggerating. I know that seems nefarious. 
He's intentionally exaggerating, making more of something because he wants to really drive home an important point. I'm going to explain later what that means. He's not trying to be a homewrecker. But as he was staring at this crowd, right, this crowd who was following him like a group of paparazzi waiting to see a magic show. That's what they were there for. Waiting to see a magic show and hoping Jesus would feed them again. He makes these stunning statements to them to pry out their shallow commitments, to really weigh out the risk versus reward in following him. According to Jesus, the risk of following him is very high. Losing everyone and losing everything. That's the potential of following him. It's, it's also a, a calling on all who, who wish to follow him to consider what the salvation he offers so freely and so graciously and has purchased uh, at such a great price for us, what that salvation costs us, what that salvation requires of us, what being his disciple means for the way we live our lives. Now, it's important to know to make the distinction that Jesus is not telling us how to be a Christian here. He's not saying, if you want to be a Christian, then do these things. He's not saying that. Because if he is saying that, we are all doomed. We are all doomed. He's not saying that. None of us would have a chance, if that was the case, to be his disciple. So unlike some moron pastors and ministers... He's not playing a bait and switch here. He's not making things way too easy with cheap grace. And he's not preaching legalism. He's not playing the bait and switch. But he is telling us right up front what he is calling us to do. That's what this passage is about. It's a reminder of the danger, once again, of nominal Christianity. And to consider three things. Loss, the cost, and the commitment of being a disciple of Jesus. So let's look at the first thing, to consider the loss, verses 26 and 27. And again, as the story goes, here in Luke 14, Jesus was being followed by this large crowd. And again, this isn't unheard of in Luke. Jesus was very popular. But over and over again, we see Jesus is not impressed with a large crowd. He doesn't see his success before the Father being gauged by how many people show up to listen that day. Jesus' faithfulness is measured upon his faithfulness, or success is measured upon the faithfulness to his Father. And so he turns to the crowd in verse 26, like I said before, trying to pry out their shallow commitments and he says, again, some of the most unencouraging things he could say. Again, as if he was trying to tell them, don't follow me. To hate your father and mother, your wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters, and even yourself. And if you don't, you cannot be my disciple. These are such stunning words of Jesus. We should be stunned by these. Especially if you're sitting next to your spouse, you just kind of can see them like, ooh, man, that's rough. This is hard for their ears to hear. It's hard for our ears to hear. So how do we take this? Of course, we know that the New Testament tells us in several passages that we're to honor our father and mother, Old Testament and New Testament, to honor them. 
in our hearts and our minds and our attitudes. To love our wives, right? And to love our children and to care for our families. So is Jesus at odds with the rest of the Bible? And if Jesus tells us earlier to love our enemies, but now he's telling us to hate our very own loved ones and friends? This hate, this is a shocker word for us because we normally wouldn't, we would normally kind of define that as opposition, a strong opposition, an emotional malice. But rather what he is saying is that hate here means the thing rejected, the one thing that we reject in the choice between two important claims. So as important as our claim is our family, our friends, our children, our wives are, and then the importance of the following of Jesus. And if those choices ever come in a crossroads to one another, the one that we hate is the one that we will turn from, is what Jesus is saying. He's grabbing our attention using this hyperbole again. Because our loyalty is to be to him. It is to be greater than every single human relationship that we can have in this life. However close it is, however strong it is, however meaningful and however strong your commitment is to him, to him, those relationships are not to be constraining in your relationship to Jesus. Your earthly responsibilities are not to be constraining to your relationship with Jesus. Even those closest to us, I know what I'm saying here, including ourselves, as he says. Even ourselves, what we feel, what we want, what we desire, never can trump our commitment to Jesus. And, and then if they do, this is what Jesus says, you can't be my disciple. It gets harsher. Look at verse 27. Those who do not bear their own cross cannot be my disciple. We've seen this before in Luke 9, 23. But again, this is a shocking statement. Again, because the cross was not a piece of jewelry, a symbol of love and devotion like it is to us. But it was a, a, a symbol and a literal thing that represented a grotesque means of execution. And this grotesque means of execution was meant to drive fear and terror into everybody. I, I couldn't think of an, an example of this today. Maybe you can, and if you can't, say it at the end. But I couldn't. I couldn't think of an example to this. What, 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 what matches with us on this? They, they, they knew. These people, the crowd knew. They knew what the cross was. They knew what it meant. Just... A generation earlier, thousands of Jews were crucified all at once by the Romans as they were squelching a rebellion. They knew what that was. They knew what Jesus was saying here when he talked about the cross, just as Jesus knows exactly what he was saying. The cross that his followers face, though, the cross that his followers bear, Praise God, brothers and sisters, it's not his cross. We do not bear his cross. Only he can carry that cross. What he is saying is that he must be worth anything and everything. 
that you must be you must be willing to endure anything and everything because you are his and so the crosses that we bear means that in this life not everything is going to be easy sure in the kingdom we've been talking a lot about this in the kingdom it will end in a banquet it'll end in a celebration with the with the king as our host invites us in but to get there the road is going to be tough the way is filled with war within ourselves, with our sin natures. It's filled with temptations around from this world. It's constantly bombarding us, even, even at war at times and, and hostility between our own family and friends. Those things, too, can pose a threat to us on this road to following him as we bear that cross. And this is the cross that we bear when we follow Jesus as a disciple. And even for some, that cross might even be martyrdom, death. Jesus must have our absolute loyalty and commitment no matter who may try to come in between us and us carrying our cross. Our cross as a call to a one-way death trip. So if we are to follow Jesus, we must consider the loss. It's quite unfortunate, brothers and sisters, that these are choices that we have to make and that these choices exist. And I, I think that some of you in this room, you've had to literally make these choices. You desire to follow Jesus according to the word of God and desire to be a part of a church and a fellowship that wants to be faithful to the scripture. And you view yourself to face rejection and ridicule from even dearest loved ones. And, and I just want to encourage you that according to Jesus, you've made the right choice. You've made the right choice. And you're in good company together. Because brothers and sisters, through centuries, have made this choice. Brothers and sisters across the world are having to make this choice to even get up and go to church. Or they will face death or uh, jail, loss of job, whatever it may be. This is what it means to make that choice, to take up one's cross and follow him. We just got finished reading together the book, The Pilgrim's Progress. And our pilgrim at the very beginning, when he is faced with the reality of the gospel, and he sees his sin, and he sees the just, righteous wrath of God that will be poured toward him. The reality of the gospel. And the eventual outcome of his destruction because of his sin. He meets the evangelist, as he is called. And he wants to know, what do I do? And the evangelist points him toward what is called the wicked gate. And there he would find hope from this destruction. And so despite the ridicule he faced from the city that he was leaving, and even his own family, his own wife, the man named Christian, still had to leave behind everything to go to the wicked gate. Here's how John Bunyan put it. In my dream, the man began to run. He hadn't run far from his own door when his wife and children noticed that he was what he was doing and cried out to him, come back, come home. 
The man put his fingers in his ears and he ran on. Life, life, eternal life. He didn't turn to look at his home or his family behind, but fled toward the middle of the plain. The point is, sometimes in our own pilgrimage, it's going to require this kind of loss. And Jesus is saying to us that if you are not considering this loss, then you cannot be my disciple. I know it's hard. Look at the next one. Consider the cost. Consider the cost. And to illustrate the, the need to consider the cost, he gives us those, those two parables. And, and notice how each of them begin with the question. We're going to come back out with that in a minute. But why he starts with the question is because he's highlighting the, the absurdity of the scenarios. In both cases, the answer is obvious, isn't it? They're, they're obvious. No one would do that. No one would act that foolishly. The first parable is of the man who wishes to build a tower, and, and that tower needs a good foundation. So, the, again, the, the project itself isn't the problem, is it? The project itself isn't the problem. That's not what is foolish, but it's when the, the builder makes a very crucial mistake. <clears throat> he began the project not really counting the amount of resources, whether it be money or material or both, to finish the project. And in the end, the project isn't finished, so all the work, all the money, all the resources that have been poured into the project are now a monument of waste are now a monument of waste for everyone to see here is the folly of the builder. You ever, um, you ever driven around and seen half-done projects? And you can tell that they're not really finished because the, the crew's gone, the dumpster's gone, and it's just an eyesore, isn't it? They're a monument to the failure of everyone, of the builder, I mean. So here he says, to, to lose your reputation and resources is one thing. But in the second parable, the stakes go a little higher. Here is a king. And if this king, he fails to gauge the, the strength of his enemy, fails to gauge the strength of the, the army that will, that will come against him, they are going to face more than just ridicule in history. They're going to face death. Loss of this of a of a army and even could be the potential loss of the kingdom. And so the king must ask, is that risk worth the possible reward? And if the cost is too steep, should I send out a delegation and talk terms of peace? Well, in both scenarios, the past the path of wisdom is obvious. The landowner needs to be sure that they have everything that they need not only to start the project, but to finish it. And the king needs to be clear on what his enemy's strength is. We all know it's easy to start a project. And it's a lot easy. It's easier to start a war. But it's hard to finish those things. But the question he asks at the beginning, particularly at the first parable, engages us. It engages each of us because he says, which of you? So putting us in the stories, do you have the resources to commit to finish what has started? 
And, and just like how the king needs to seriously weigh the consequences of going to war, we too must consider the cost of giving everything in discipleship. This very specifically requires each of us to consider what it may cost you, whether it is a lot or a little. And Jesus makes it very clear what he's speaking of in verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, does this mean that we have to give up all our possessions? Does this mean we, we go home today, we take everything we own, we pile it up in the back of the truck, and we take it to goodwill tomorrow? I don't think so. In fact, I don't think so. I know so. I think that's a flat and rigid application. And it fails to do justice of what Jesus' real point is in his teaching about what it means to be a disciple. He, he is saying here, again, you cannot have split loyalties in your heart toward things, toward possessions, and just like as we said earlier, toward people. You can't have a split loyalty toward possessions and people or him. Discipleship, though, looks different. The costs may be different. We, each of us, in our different aspects of life, the cost may be different. For some, it may be a lot. For others, it may be a little. It's going to look different for someone who runs a business compared to someone who is serving as a missionary, striving to plant a church in an unreached part of the world. It's going to look different. It's going to look different to a, to a mother who's at home with her children, who's also called to follow Jesus. In certain ways, she's going to have to count and consider the cost of giving her life, just as you will in your areas of your life, whether it be uh, teaching, accounting, or any other things that it may be. All of our circumstances are different, but have you considered the cost? The point is, not that we give up all the same things to follow Jesus, but rather, we all must be willing to give up everything. I love what J.C. Ryle says here about this, about this text. He says, it costs something to be a Christian. Let that never be forgotten. To be a mere nominal Christian, to go to church, that is cheap and easy work. To hear Christ's voice and to follow Christ and believe in Christ and confess Christ, that requires much self-denial. It will cost us our sins. It will cost us our self-righteousness. It will cost us our ease and our worldliness. All, all must be given up. We must fight an enemy who comes against us with 20,000 followers. We must build a, a tower in troubled times. Our Lord Jesus would have a thoroughly understanding of this and count the cost. Have you considered the cost of following Jesus? Everything must be on the table. Open hands, pockets turned out. And those who haven't considered the cost will be like the foolish builder or a king who unwisely lets his kingdom be destroyed. And lastly, Jesus is asking us to consider the commitments. At least that's what I see here. 
verse 34, it's talking about salt. I've learned more about salt this week than I kind of ever thought I would. <laughs> and I won't bore you with some of those things about salt. But one thing that I've learned about salt, especially if it's pure, that, it, that in its purest forms, it, it cannot lose its saltiness. It cannot lose its saltiness in of itself. But, but once salt is being diluted, once you start mixing things with it, then yes, it will begin to lose its saltiness and taste, its pungentness, whatever you want to call it. I don't even know if that's a word. Here's what he's saying about this. Half-hearted followers who don't consider the loss and they don't consider the cost of, of the commitment, then this half-hearted disciple is again really no disciple at all. They're not salty. And, and then he asks, can that salt be restored? And, and the question is, the answer is no. because It's impossible for a disciple to be anything less than a salty, devoted follower of Jesus. That doesn't mean that a follower of Jesus will not struggle with indwelling sin. And that sin could ever lessen our devotion at times. Yes, it can. But, but still, our, our greatest desire and intention is to follow Jesus without reservation. And with, open, with again, those, those open hands to whatever he has for us. Anything less than that. A posture of the heart is like a tasteless salt that is only good to be thrown in with manure. Or like when Matthew says, only useful to be trampled on. Consider the commitment. Consider the saltiness. You know, it's so easy for people to only pay lip service to the call of, of a disciple. And, and even with the best intentions could mean it. But without actually considering the sacrifices, the loss, the cost, the commitment that might be required to follow Jesus, all of it can be folly. There, there are, thi are, there, are there things that you will not do? Or is there a part of your income that is not open? Or, or, or are there standards of living that you could not possibly imagine foregoing or anything else? Is there any sinful behaviors or attitudes that we simply will not let go of? Because this whole passage is, is really asking all of us, again, back to that question from the very beginning, does Jesus seem worth it? Does Jesus seem worth it to you? Is the loss, the cost, and the commitment worth the reward? Last week we talked a lot. We talked a lot about what a Christian is. And a Christian is a person who understands first their, their spiritual bankruptcy before him, right? Remember there, the poor, the blind, the crippled, the needy. They understand their, their spiritual bankruptcy, but then they also understand and they see his grace. And they're overwhelmed by it. But Jesus is not telling us here that a Christian is a glutton for punishment. He's not saying that to us here. A Christian is not someone who takes a perverse joy in pain and difficulty. 
But rather, a, a Christian is someone who understands the sacrifice of what they might lose. The costs that they may bear in this life and the commitment that they must make. But yet they also know and they also believe that all of these sacrifices are worth it. They are worth the reward in following Jesus. That he is worth it. Because the reward is him. The reward is Jesus. Uh, Paul said it like this. He said, whatever I had, I, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Everything he has is all on the table, ready to be lost for Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, I love what he says here. And he puts it strongly to the point. Starting in verse 4, he says, But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance and afflictions and hardships and calamities, Beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love. By truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known as dying, and behold, we live as punished and not yet killed, as sorrowful and yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing what? Everything. How could Paul be this committed? How could Jesus ask us of such audacious things? Because the reward, the reward is the highest and greatest of all treasures, Christ himself. And if you value Christ, then, then the things that you may lose, including the things that are most precious in your life, the things that would hurt the most, that it still would be very gut-wrenching to, to lose, that they are nothing in comparison of having the riches of Christ and knowing Christ. Let's not be like that half-hearted builder again or the unwise king, but let's have our eyes wide open, knowing the cost, but prizing the Savior more. That makes us salty right there. That will make you salty when you treasure Jesus above all things. That's what finishes the tower. And that's what defeats the enemy at the gate. I want to finish up this morning by just giving one last application. Or maybe one. Maybe this is the only one. When you proclaim the gospel, when we proclaim the gospel, you share the gospel with an unbeliever. Do not be afraid to tell them the whole truth about following Jesus. Do not be afraid to tell them to really seriously weigh out the costs. If Jesus did it with you, and if Jesus does it in the Bible, then he is certainly 
wants us to do it with them. And even if they don't make a decision, even then and right there, you can trust in the Lord. You can trust in the Lord. They must know that following him means that he has a claim on everything in their life. To have faith in Jesus is a call to come and die. And that nothing is off limits or outside of his lordship. And if they are not told of the loss and the cost and the commitment required of discipleship, then they're going to be like the guy who started the tower. We know too many people have started building a tower, and now there's just monuments of folly. No longer around. If you're scared of telling them of the cost of discipleship, because you are afraid that few people will, will ever start down the road of discipleship, then know that the reality is, listen, is no fewer people will make it all the way to the end. If you're afraid, again, if you're afraid few people will ever start down the road of discipleship, then know that the reality is no fewer people will make it all the way to the end. This is why Jesus would rather the many not to follow him than to follow them in their own terms and their own agenda. And this is what Jesus, that's why he turned at the crowd that day. It's why he turns and he even looks at us this morning. It's also imperative why we understand it, not only for ourselves, but how we evangelize. A song that we haven't sung often, but we do like to sing it. Another Isaac Watts hymn. When I survey the wonders cross. The last verse has always been a verse that's just kind of been interesting to me. Because it's, the song is about the, the, the glory of the cross. And, and even the harshness of the reality of the cross. As sinners, when we face it, we see what our Savior has done for us. When I survey the wonders cross. But the last verse, when we sing together, I love these words, but yet they're so profound. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. I've always wondered about those words. But this is exactly what Jesus is saying in this passage. He's not asking us to just give them our hearts. A disciple is one who gives everything. Everything is on that table, all that we are. Because the risk is nothing in comparison to the reward. He is who he has claimed to be. He is worthy. So is he worthy? The Bible answers that question. Yes, he is. But what about in your heart? Is he worthy? Is he worth the loss, the cost, the commitment? That might even have to let go of family? To suffer, to take up your cross and follow him. To be salty in a tasteless world. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the word again. We pray, oh Father, that you would continue to show us these things and what it means to follow. Even our hearts, maybe the areas that we are, we're holding back. Things that we're just not ready to let go of. Would you help us see those things? And put it in comparison to the reward. Is he worthy? Is he worthy?
Lord, we love you. We give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.